the way I approach running. It's totally a joyous pursuit for me, and which doesn't mean that every day is happy, but I do it because I love it and I feel good when I run. And the racing is just a fraction of it. And um, I had run all summer training on sort of that happiness principle where, you know, if I'm training happy and not stressed and I'm enjoying it, then I'm training strong and I'll be healthy. And so that was just a reminder to let it come from within and to tap into that, you know, deep pleasure I take in running that really has nothing to do with competition. What's up, everyone? It's your host, Mario Fraioli. I am on a little bit of a hiatus from recording new episodes of the podcast, so I'm taking this time as an opportunity to rerun some of my favorites from years past that some of you may want to revisit and others might be hearing for the first time. This week, I'm bringing back an incredible conversation that I had a little over three years ago with Katie Arnold. Katie is a mom, a heck of an ultra runner, and a great writer whose memoir, Running Home, really spoke to me on a number of levels. In it, we talked about smile and flow and why those two words are important to her when she races, reverse goal setting and how this strategy sets her up for success, and balancing competitive running with the rest of her life. We also discuss the importance of observation and paying attention, how death can wake us up to the powerful realization that everything is changing all the time, and how her book came to be and what she hopes readers take away from it. Before we get into it, a big thank you to Gooder for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Gooder are my favorite sunglasses for running, driving, walking the dog, and pretty much everything else that I do outside. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they're super fun. As you know, I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are still A Ginger's Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Gooders are also super affordable with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. So if you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two or three of Gooders and head over to Gooder.com slash Mario and use the code Mario15 to get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R.com slash Mario and use the code M-A-R-I-O-1-5 to get 15% off your entire order. And remember, your face will thank you. Okay, that's all I've got off the top. Please enjoy this rerun episode from 2019 with the amazing Katie Arnold. like to start our conversation is by talking about two words specifically and those are smile and flow <laughs> and I know for you those are the two words that were written on your left hand before the Leadville 100 which you won mm -hmm. and I'd like to know how did you land on those two words and what was their significance to you um yeah that that's a great question I um I put those on my hand the morning, um, very, very early in the morning that, um, of the Leadville 100. And, um, I guess I'll start with flow. Um, I had been 
in Leadville in late June at the run camp as, as a training um, weekend. And I had the first day of the run camp, I, um, we did about a marathon, like 26 mile training run. And I was like watching my watch the whole time, which I don't often run with a watch, but for some reason that day I was really keyed in on time and trying to figure out how far I'd gone. Um, I wasn't even like clocking the distance, but I was just looking at the time and trying to gauge. And I, I, you know, I had a good run, but I got to the end and it had been stressful. Um, and I, I didn't, I don't like running that way. And, um, so that night I was sort of trying to break it down in my head, like, well, how would it feel differently? And how do I want to feel differently the next day? And so I decided the next day I would just go out and run. And my the words I used to describe the feeling I wanted was I wanted to be in the flow of the mountains. I feel that the mountains have a, a palpable energy, as does all of nature. But I was in the high mountains. And I thought if I could just flow with the energy of the day in the mountains, that I would have a more enjoyable day. And I, um, that's exactly what happened. I totally let go of time. And I had one of those days, you know, when you're out there and you are running faster than you think you're running and it feels, um, not easy, but almost effortless. And it was an incredible day. And I knew when I finished that run, that was up and over hope pass, that that was the feeling that I wanted to have in my body and sort of my spirit on race day. And that, that being in that flow, just it's so much more powerful than I am. Right. And so if you can tap into that. Mm -hmm. And so that was the idea behind flow and smile is just part of my, um, you know, the way I approach running, it's totally a joyous, um, pursuit for me. And which doesn't mean that every day is happy, but I do it because I love it. And I feel good when I run and the racing is just a fraction of it. And um, I had run all summer training on sort of that happiness principle, where, you know, if I'm training happy and not stressed, and I'm enjoying it, then I'm training strong and I'll be healthy. And so that was just a reminder to let it come from within and to tap into that, you know, deep pleasure I take in running that really has nothing to do with competition. And is that something you have to remind yourself of even when you're not racing and you're just having a tough day or maybe you just don't want to head out there for a run, but you've got to like just tap into that that flow state, you know, remind yourself to smile so that you can get what you want to out of it? Yes. I mean, I, definitely. It's a practice. It's a daily practice. And some days, you know, our mindset is just there. Maybe we've had more sleep. We're feeling more optimistic about something or some other part of our life is really clicking. So that spills over into the running and it feels um, you know, like you're just more in that flow state. But then other days, I had a day like this last week where just everything felt I don't know, my word is sticky, where everything is just harder and you're carrying a lot of mental baggage and there's worries or there's that doubt. We all have those voices. And um, yes, so a lot of times I'll just try to tap into that feeling of why am I out here? Oh, right, because I feel free when I run and that running is a form of creative expression for me um, and and real true expression of who I am as a person. And and so that helps. Um, and, and there's 
there's definitely science behind the smiling about, you know, when we smile, our body is, you know, our, our perception of pain or discomfort decreases. Um, and so it, it is sometimes just a matter of reminding myself to smile. And that, that said, not, you know, you're not in flow all the time. And, um, I realize that it's this sort of, um, state of grace almost. Um, and you kind of can't will yourself into it. You can have tools and there's, you know, for me, there's precursors to the flow state, but you can't force your way in, right? That's the opposite of flow. Yeah. But sometimes, (laughs) sometimes that mood has to follow the action that you take to your point. Like you can force yourself to smile and maybe that will help Mm -hmm. you to feel a little bit happier or experience joy. I know that's certainly been the case for, you know, myself and, you know, to your point, I've seen it like even in, in the marathon at the highest levels, um, I think outside did an article on this with Elliot Kipchoge and you see him mm-hmm. late in a race when he's running like low two hour marathon pace and he's, he's smiling. Um, and yes. you know, I think that's, you know, there's research to back that up as you had, you had just stated, but I think that helps him, you know, even when he's in immense amounts of pain to remind himself that like, this is, this is something that I enjoy and it sets me free and I'm challenging myself in, in, you know, my own way. Right. And it's this act of self-discovery and right. Every run good or bad, hard or easy is a teacher. And, um, to be in that receptive state to what is it going to teach me today? I think that's really always, what I try to go into a run, even if I know before I start that I'm having one of those sticky days, it's like, okay, what, what can it teach me? What am I open to learning? And, um, if you go in with that mindset, you always walk away. It's always a win having been out there. I think that's great. I'd love to stay on Leadville for a little while longer. That was your first hundred mile race. When Mm -hmm. did you decide that you wanted to do it? I decided, I guess, you know, the previous winter when you put your name in um, to the lottery and um, I had been recovering from a pretty um, bad injury that I'd sustained in a whitewater uh, rafting accident. And um, so I was coming back from that and I I, I just, I don't know, my intuition just said, you know, like set a big goal and I kind of had worked my way back up. into, you know, I had done a trail marathon. And um, so I just put my name in the hat for Leadville. And um, then when I got in, I knew that would become the sort of defining structure of my year. And it felt really right. I have always been, um, before I got into running, I was really big into mountain biking. Um, And I'd always wanted to ride the Leadville 100 mountain bike race. And, but at the time I thought a hundred miles on my bike seemed insane and I never got around to it. And, um, so Leadville, the, you know, when I wanted to try a hundred just made sense to me as a runner because, um, you know, life works in funny ways. It, you know, it usually kind of works out, but often not the way you think it's going to. So, you know, t- 15 years ago when I was riding my bike a lot, would I have ever have thought that I would run the 100 mile race and win it? Never. <laughs> what were your goals going into the race? Uh, my goal, my number one goal in any race is just to finish mm-hmm. um, and to um, not do, you know, great harm to myself in doing so. Um, as a mountain biker, my mantra used to be, um, live to ride another day. And I'm not that aggressive on a bike, but, um, you know, that sort of spills over into running, you know, when I have a long race, like I'm looking at the big picture, I want to, 
enjoy the feeling of running and moving through the mountains on my own two feet for as long as I can. So I don't, um, you know, I'm not going to go into a race and just like burn myself up. So I really just wanted to, to finish it and first of all, see if it was possible to finish it on, you know, my recently healed leg. My orthopedist had said, you know, I should never run again. Um, and I, I knew that to not be, you know, that wasn't going to be my story, but, um, I still didn't know. I had no idea if my leg would be able to withstand a hundred miles. So, um, I just went in totally open with that sort of beginner's mind of, I was starting over as an ultra runner, having, you know, had this really bad injury and, um, I was just open to anything. I think that's really why I was in that state, you know, that it allowed me, I was free of expectation for myself. So I really could perform at the highest level. And you ended up winning it. So did you have any competitive ambitions heading to the start line? I mean, sure. I I knew my training over the summer and I'd had that amazing day, as we talked about in June at Leadville, where, um, I felt really confident and most of all, I felt joyous and strong and I felt like I was running um, with all parts of my being. So not just my body and my mind, but my spirit and my, you know, I had the right mindset and I, so I, I had an indication that things were aligning for me and um, I knew I was running strong and I didn't have injury. So, um, but I don't really run, like I don't clock myself. I don't, I don't do time. I don't check my pace very much generally speaking, like only maybe about a month before a race, I'll get my watch out and just see where I am. And so I had a sense from that, um, that I was running pretty well. I mean, that said, I, I spend the month of July every summer in Canada at sea level. So I was, you know, not doing myself any favors with altitude, <laughs> but I figured I would use my month here at sea level as just speed work. You know, you, know, you can run a lot faster mm-hmm. and recover a lot faster when you're not at 7,000 feet, which is where I normally live in Santa Fe. And so then when I got back to New Mexico, I, I was running up high again at like 12 and a half thousand feet, which are the mountains out my door. And I knew I was running about 12 minute miles um, in the high, high, you know, above 10,000 feet. Um, but I still didn't really check. I didn't check to see what previous winners, their pace had been. Um, I, I'm, I do a little bit better when I'm low on data um, and, and don't have a lot of expectations. Um, but that said, I, I thought I could be competitive. I think that's a great takeaway because I think all runners, regardless of what level we're at, we put this, whether it's a time goal or a place goal, like something finite in front of us and use that as our barometer. And if we're not on track for that or we don't get it, it can be really discouraging. But if we can go in with an open mind and take off that self-imposed pressure, that's usually when we have breakthroughs and we have these performances that we may not have been able to see even in our hardest workouts and training. Right. And I often start with, you know, I I don't know, I, I, like I know other athletes who have coaches will have like a goal, B goal, C goal. And I kind of reverse mine. And this is just where I've always done is like, I have, um, you know, the, 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 the low hanging fruit, the, just the finish goal is my first one. And then I think, you know, maybe I'll go like, could I go top 10 or something? This wasn't specific to Leadville. And then maybe I'll have a top, you know, then I'll sort of think about time in there. But really with Leadville, um, 
my goal was just to be in that flow state as long as possible. And I figured I'd eventually pop out, but that if I could be in the flow for as much of the day as possible, I'd have the best chance of having my best day possible. Um, but I, I didn't, you know, I, when I did the math on the time, and this was like four or five days before Leadville, when I was just making my, my race plan for my crew, um, I, you know, conservatively, I was at between 21 and 22 hours. Um, but like I said, I hadn't checked to see like what, you know, where that would fall for the top women. I just, um, I just wanted to be in the flow <laughs> and it actually worked out. Were you able to maintain that flow state throughout the entire day or at least I most actually, of the day? I, I really was. I, I stayed in it the whole time and that was far beyond what I'd expected. Um, and, but, you know, I had maybe one or two low moments, but those were pretty fleeting. And, um, I just ate something or I changed something like if I ever have a, when I have lows or, I, I usually take it to as a sign that I need to eat or just change something about what's happening. So like I was starting the climb to over Hope Pass on that the first climb over and um, I just ate a little bit more and I got out my trekking poles to sort of mix things up and, and I was able to shake it off pretty quickly. And how can you not when you're climbing Hope? It's so gorgeous up there. Right. Been, talk about like the hills are alive. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's gorgeous out there. I've been out, I went out there two years ago to crew for a couple of my athletes that, that I coach and it is just absolutely stunning. Um, yeah. that section of the course, especially that time of the day when you would be going through it, it's just like, you have to experience right. it. I can't really even do it justice by, yeah. by attempting to describe it. And that's that feeling of sort of like, you know, tapping into that larger energy of the mountains and um, just like letting that carry me, right? Look up, like, don't just look at your feet. You're doing that shuffle. You're maybe you dug yourself into a hole and you didn't eat enough or right. You're digging out, but like lift your eyes up and look around. And that, that gives you this real boost. I also re really rely on aid stations and people and the energy of the, the crowds. Um, and certainly my own family was all along the route. And, and that is another energy to tap into for sure. Coming out of the race, did winning it change your perspective on yourself as a runner and as an athlete and what you might want to try and attempt next? That's a great question. Um, I think so. Yes. I mean, I, I, we all struggle with those sort of, um, demons or those, the self doubt and, you know, probably like many runners or, you know, mine was like, well, do I really belong? Like, I, I know I have the talent at this and more importantly, I love it. And it comes from this deeper place within me, but like, can I really hang? And, you know, that ultimately that's sort of that nagging question. And after Leadville, you know, um, and, and putting down the kind of time that I did at Leadville, um, it changed the way I saw myself as a runner, just in terms of that this is, you know, I really do have a gift for this. And um, I really can compete on the highest level. And, ha you know, and, and, and sort of, a, you know, feeling proud of that, but also, you know, sort of just it being this remarkable thing at my age. And, um, you know, it's made me curious about doing more hundreds. Um, I really want to run in Europe and I'm scheduled to go over there to CCC in late August. I'm having some 
I don't know, I haven't said this to anyone, but I'm having some kind of ambivalence or just questions about leaving my family. Um, I've been on the go so much on book tour Mm -hmm. all year. And um, I think that just shows that like our needs change just based on circumstance and that it's, it's, you know, sometimes human nature is to want to hold on to the way things have been. Like I've, I've traveled and raced and gone off and gone on book tour and, you know, um, and, and suddenly I'm in that, that phase where I've done that so much that I'm feeling a little bit more tug of staying, of being home. So, um, it's just, I have a curiosity about that. Like, you know, what's, what is that right now and how can I honor it? How do you straddle that line between, wanting to see what's possible for yourself and pursue these new challenges while you can and making sure that, you know, running or at least the competitive side of it has or maintains a good place in your life. Yeah, that's the trickiest part. Um, I mean, the easy answer is in a perfect world, I could bring my husband and kids <laughs> with me to more places and more races. And um, I wouldn't have that just sort of desperate feeling that I have when I leave sometimes of being so torn, like no matter how excited I am to go race or run or try something new or, you know, um, go out on book tour. Like I always, it's always a struggle to leave home to just you know, emotionally for me, my, my husband's fine. He's amazing. And my kids, you know, are great when I'm gone, but it's just me. It's that wrenching feeling. Um, and so in a perfect world, I could bring them more places. Like they were at Leadville and I swear they were my secret weapon, you know, knowing they were there. And I, I didn't have to like separate myself from them. I would run into the aid station. They'd been in, they'd be in some goofy costume. I might have like one minute with them but it was like they were still there with me. So um, I would love to bring them more places. Um, and, you know, and that way I could incorporate, you know, I could kind of give myself to the racing more without feeling so torn. But again, this is all coming from me. It's not, you know, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, my husband gives me tons of freedom to make these choices and supports my running. And my kids are wild about it. So it's just me internally, you know, want not wanting to miss moments you know my kids are getting older it's actually getting harder to leave them because they're older and like it I, you realize like the time is 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 getting shorter with them as children i'm not a parent myself so i can't relate mm-hmm. to that directly but i do think as individuals we put the most pressure on ourselves and we always feel guiltiest about doing something yes. um it's not it's not the people that we're affecting they're going to be for the most part Fine. In most cases, very supportive yeah. and fine, but you know, we put that pressure on ourselves, and you know, it, it's a tough. I think that's a tough line to to walk. Oftentimes, especially when you have family and you have a busy life outside of, you know, in this case, it's it's running or something else. But that takes away from them because oftentimes you don't get that time back. Yeah, right. And it's interesting, like use the word guilt, and it used to be more guilt, like when they were little, little and babies, and you know, and I would leave them with nannies. Like that was more this guilt. Um, right now it feels more just like a desire for, mm-hmm. on my part to be with them. So it's not like the guilt of going, but it's the desire to stay, which is so fascinating. And even though it's new, 
um, and I'm like curious about the source of it and how to honor it. It's, um, it's just, it's, it's different. And it, it, it's, it's interesting to watch and to study that part of me and like, what is that desire right now to stay and how do I honor it? And can I stay and go like, in other words, bring them, um, and how to balance it. It's just never, you know, it's always shifting. And I think that's the nature of life. And I think that's why running is, you know, is such a good teacher because especially in ultra distances, right? There's so many variables and, um, you have to be nimble and open to, to them all and, you know, do your work and train and get there ready, but then just be willing to like roll with whatever shows up. (laughs) Let's continue along this line, an article that you recently wrote for the New York times, they entitled it real life training plan, Katie Arnold, Mm -hmm. real life training plan. And (laughs) there was an excerpt in there. It said, if I was going to have any hope of finishing Leadville, I'd have to figure out a way to turn my challenges into strengths. Like you don't have a coach Mm -hmm. and the longest distance I'd run to date was 62 miles. What I needed Mm -hmm. was a plan. I decided to use the best one I could find custom made just for me, my life. Um, and you (laughs) just started to describe that, but can you dig into that a little bit more and explain to me what you meant by your quote unquote real life training plan? Yeah. I mean, I just like, I live my life. I have kids. I'm a writer, right? Those are, you know, these fixed things about me. Um, and so I, and I never want my racing or my training to take over my family life. And so when I, knowing those things, I thought that I would just use my life, you know, the things I do in my everyday life as training. And, um, so that's everything from, you know, maybe not getting a great night's sleep because I'm up with one of the kids and sort of training on suboptimal you know, circumstances or conditions to, you know, having to be flexible with my training plan and, you know, do like 15, I write about this in the article, I would do like 15 miles in the morning. And then I would go at the end of the day when my legs are tired and I wanted to be at home and run 10 more, you know, and I figured that was really good training for Leadville because I, 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 I guessed I'd never run a hundred miles, but I guess there would be lots of points in the race where I didn't feel like running and my body was tired and maybe my brain was tired and my heart, you know, wanted to be at home. And so to train at those, you know, to those moments and to look for them rather than to only train when I was at my best. Um, and so it was just, I just counted everything. I was I had a really generous a- approach where everything counted as training, anytime on my feet. So that's like walking the dog with the girls to school and then taking the long way home. That's when I listen to my podcast and do some of my best thinking. So I would just count the, those morning walks, sometimes four or five miles. Then I would do my daily miles. I always did my runs and got my miles in, but then everything else on top was like, you know, bonus points coaching my girls lacrosse team. I was like, I'd go run like 25 miles and then be like, I'm on the field coaching for an hour and a half training, you know, like I would just count that as training. Well, I love that. And it's just flipping your perspective because I think oftentimes, and again, I don't have kids that I'm watching over Mm -hmm. or coaching their practices or, you know, having, having to take care of them during my day. But we all have these different things that, mm-hmm. you know, get in the way. And oftentimes, especially as as athletes and running is something that's important to us and we all do it for our different reasons, we look at that as taking away from our training or affecting our training or cutting into right. our training. Instead and of I, adding to it. Exactly. And just flipping that perspective and being like, you know what, this is actually complementing my training. And you find a way to, you know, convince yourself of that in your head. And all of a sudden it becomes, you know, it's not something that 
you know, you dread or you're annoyed by, you're like, this is actually, this is helping me. And this is going to help me in, like you said, those later stages of the race where, you know, I might need to just like problem solve or whatever it may be. So I appreciated that perspective. And I think, I think we can all, you know, apply that to our own approaches. Right. Because then you're not sort of at war with your life, right? You're not like in this constant state of battle with like your obligations and, and also the things you love in your life, like competing with your running. Like it's just, it's just all adds on, you know, it just augments, um, the training. And, you know, that said, I was diligent about getting my miles in and that was just my own, you know, I didn't have a training plan, but I had a sense I've been doing it long enough. I had a sense for how I was building, um, but that kind of flexibility made it a more enjoyable. Um, it made, you know, it certainly made me easier to get along with at home and more present as a mother. Um, and I think in the end, it just made me like a more durable runner, right? It's just like more able to roll with unexpected things and just not be so fixed on a training schedule or a certain plan of how it's going to be. I think that's what parenthood is so good at. You know, it just throws a lot of stuff at you and you have to be agile. Have you tweaked or changed your approach at all over the past year? Or have you just realized this works for me and I'm going to continue to adapt it as I need to, but the foundation's pretty solid? Yeah, I haven't really tweaked it. Um, well, I will say the only thing I've done differently this year, um, this has been a big year because I released my memoir, Running Home, and I've been traveling a lot. Um, and one thing I've done differently with my running, um, is that I've raced as training, right? So I've used races to build up for big, long, you know, objectives. So I raced U-Rock 100K in May. That was sort of my big sprinkle. And I, I used three 50Ks leading up to it as training. And I don't really do that. Like I usually just run on my own and and get my stuff done that way, and then show up at the big goal race. And um, I want this, but this was one of my goals was to learn how to race as a training run because oftentimes when I race, like I am competitive and I want to do well and I want to do well for myself. And so, um, but you know, how can I work that muscle in me mm-hmm. of like? using a run as a race as a training run. And so that was different. It's just a little bit more of a public way of doing something, which I have to get used to because I'm, you know, I mostly run alone. That's just by scheduling, you you know, it's logistics more than anything. Um, But so that's the one thing I've done differently. And it's interesting. I don't know how it, how it went. I mean, it was certainly, I liked using those run, those races as training runs because, um, it's just more convenient, right? Someone else does the legwork, sets the course. You just have to follow the ribbons and there's food laid out for you. (laughs) Certainly easier. Um, but it's, um, it's also, it just requires a different mindset. Last running related question for now, at least, will you return to Leadville? I definitely will. I'm not going next month. I made a conscious effort. Uh, I mean, conscious decision to not go this next year, um, you know, to give a, myself a year in between because I knew it would be really hard not to want to either replicate the day or improve on it. And um, I just wanted to honor it because it was so remarkable. It was really like a convergence of every part of my life coming together at the right time in the right place. And, um, you know, sure, maybe some, maybe I could improve my time, but it's, it won't be the way it was. We just, 
it's human nature to want to recreate or hold on. But um, that happened once. And uh, so I wanted to give myself space to just let that be and not feel like I had to go back and defend anything. I think that's, you know, such an interesting part of our um, culture and our, our athleticism, you know, and sort of our approach to sports is that, you know, the reigning champ has to go back and defend. I just wanted to let it stand because it was pretty remarkable. <laughs> And that's hard to do is I really appreciate you being able to, to make that decision and to stick to it because especially in our, our world now, there's all kinds oh. of like external pressure. I'm sure you get all the questions. Are you coming back? Are you coming back? Are you coming back? And yeah, to be able like to say I, like, no, like, it's hard to do. Yeah, it is hard to do. Plus, mostly for me, I have really a strong attachment to Leadville. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, an incredible day. I love the mountains there. You know, I have amazing memories. So yes, I do. I do. I want to go back every second. I do, but um, I feel like just to let it breathe a little bit, and and not to buy into that whole notion that I still have more to prove. Like that's so what we do to ourselves, right? Is like, oh, I did that, but I'm not even going to celebrate it because there's probably something bigger I can do. And that's a trap. Um, I think that it's easy to fall into. So I'm just trying to be mindful, but I will go back. I'm going to go back in 2020. Um, I want to do Lead Woman, which is the series. You know, it's mountain biking and running. Um, and it's the back-to-back 100 bike and 100 run. So you will get your Leadville 100 mile bike ride in. I probably will. That's Who awesome. knows? I hope. That's Knock awesome. on wood. I love it. <laughs> I love to switch gears at this point of the conversation. Talk about writing. You're a writer by trade. Uh, you write a column for Outside Magazine. And as you just mentioned, mm-hmm. your memoir, Running Home, was recently released. And despite mm-hmm. the title of the book and on the cover, there's an image of a younger you in full flight on the front the book really isn't about running. It's not a, I wouldn't call it a running book. It's about a lot of things that have nothing to do directly with the sport or the activity, but running ends up being a way for you to deal with grief in your life and discover different Mm -hmm. things about yourself and set you free in a certain way. What were some of the main things from your perspective that you were hoping readers would take away from it? Yeah. I mean, I love that point that it's not really a book about running um, because I really have always seen that to be the case. Running is kind of the the medium, right? It's the sort of through line of the narrative and it's what carries the story, but it is about so much more. It's about living and dying and grieving and resilience and listening. I think a lot of what it's about is listening to that intuitive voice inside of us all, right? That we all have, um, but that gets, you know, overshadowed, I think so much as, especially as we get older, you know, um, and we have so many demands on our time and our screens and our devices and so much data coming at us that we forget how to listen to ourselves, that we really have these answers for what's right for us deep within us. And, you know, the the way that came out in my book is that, you know, the the genesis or the reason I wrote the book is that my father in 2010 um, died of kidney cancer and I had just given birth to my second daughter. And um, I, you know, I was, had been very close to my father on numerous levels. Um, he had taught me to love the outdoors. He was a national geographic photographer. So he had also 
really um, influenced me as a writer. He was a photographer, but he he showed me how powerful it is to be an observer and to capture those little moments in life that we so often miss because we're doing other things. And um, so when my father died, my grief kind of manifested itself as anxiety. Um, and this was part, partly postpartum, part like midlife, you know, I was just 38 or 39 and hadn't lost anyone that close to me before. And I think when you do, you realize like we really are mortal. We really will die. And, you know, so much of our youth is, is spent thinking maybe that won't happen to us Mm -hmm. or pushing the thought away. And and here it just hit me, you know, I also had a new baby, which is like a crazy time of mortality. When you think about, you know, you brought this life into the world and like that your job is to protect that life. And, um, you also have to live so you can do that. And so any, anyway, I just had this intense anxiety and, and I began to think I was dying too. Um, and I, um, this went on for about 18 months, this really intense health anxiety. And I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where there's tons of natural healers. I'm a very open person. And I was trying all different kind of um, modalities to, to work through my anxiety and my grief. And some of them worked and some of them didn't. But the thing that worked the best um, was running and running long distances alone in in the wilderness. So going out into nature And that, you know, on the surface was not the most logical choice because I was so afraid of something happening to my body. And, you know, I was going out alone into the remote, you know, mountains, but my, my intuition just told me that was the right thing. And, and so I think, you know, it's really about listening to that voice. Like we all have it, but it's, it can be so, um, buried beneath all the other voices in our heads, the shoulds, right? Like all the, the societal norms we think we have to uphold or, you know, demands of work or, you know, and, and so to be able to really tap in and listen to our own answers is, was a powerful lesson to me. Do you remember the run where you realize that that is what you needed more than anything else to help deal with the anxiety that you were feeling and the grief of your father's passing? Um, I don't know that there was any one run. It was sort of more a slow accrual of, of lots of runs. And, and in the beginning, you know, I've been a runner my whole life, um, but not a competitive athlete, you know, very sporadically. Um, but you know, after my father died, it was just running was just a survival tactic at that point. So I would just go out for 45 minutes or an hour. Like I was still nursing. I had a toddler and an infant at home and, you know, it was just like, it just get me out of the house into nature where I could feel connected to something larger than myself that seemed big enough to hold my grief and my, you know, that just seemed overwhelming to me. Um, so but I do remember one run where I was going farther than I had. And, you know, I think of maybe I was doing 20 miles and I just like was running and I sensed all these, um, I sensed like a, a larger support around me. Like I felt, I think I must've felt my dad's energy. Cause he, I would sometimes feel that like he came to me in a way when I was running. And, um, it was just this feeling of this is right. Like keep going. And I had no idea where it was leading me. Like none of this was premeditated. I didn't think, you know, my dad just died. I think I'm dying too. I'm going to run. I'm going to start racing and then I'm going to write a book right? Like it didn't work that way. It was just 
one foot in front of the other, which I think is such a great takeaway for readers too. No matter what your thing is, like I actually, like you said earlier, I really believe you could just take the word running out of the book wherever it appears mm-hmm. and substitute your own thing in for it. Whatever and it is. The message is very much the same. Like right. you don't have to know where you're going. And that doesn't mean be passive about your life and just sit there and wait for things to show up. Make a steady effort every day toward, you know, to whatever you're doing. Just be wholehearted in what you're doing. But it's okay if you don't know where it's going. Sometimes better, right? Because then you find all these detours and and you're much more open to things happening along the way than if you have that very fixed plan. That's why I'm always reluctant to do like a hardcore training plan. Because then I'm like, well, what if things come in from the side that like I'm meant to follow, you know? So and you just have to be in a position open. where you can pursue that if you need to or want to. Yes. I think it's just about paying attention. That was really a big legacy of my dad. And as a photographer, again, for National Geographic, he was all about like paying attention, look, seeing, looking at what's around him, taking note. And, um, you know, as, as humans, we go through life a lot just in reactive mode, right? Just reacting to things coming up, not, not necessarily keeping our eyes open um, and appreciating sort of what's arising, but just responding, um, and I think that puts us in a compromised state of creativity and, you know, and just performance. I agree. And the reason I asked that last question is in my life, I lost my mom suddenly in mm. 2008 to oh. a brain aneurysm and oh, God. very Sorry. unexpected. And for me, what's different between, between us is I had always been a competitive athlete. That was my Mm -hmm. introduction to the sport in high school. And I was 26 years old when she passed away. So I'd been at it for probably 10 or 11 years at that point. Mm -hmm. And running had always been a competitive thing. I was always interested Mm -hmm. in seeing how much faster I could get, if I could get a scholarship to college, if, you know, at that Mm -hmm. point in my life, it was qualifying for, you know, I'd qualified for Boston. I was like, can I qualify for the Olympic trials, that sort of thing. And for me, my mom's passing was very traumatic and impactful event. And I remember it wasn't one run specifically, but I went for a run the night that she passed. And for the first time in my life, running was something more than a competitive pursuit. Mm -hmm. And over the past 11 years now that she's been gone, that's continued to evolve. And I still compete and I still race and I love that side of it. But similar to what you said, like for me, it's like I need it as you know, as an outlet to connect with something, you know, greater. And it's a reminder for me that, that I'm alive. And, you know, I think it's, um, it's interesting the perspective that, you know, death can give you in a lot of different Mm -hmm. ways, you know, but also how it can change your perspective on something that had a very like clear path at one point. And now it's like, you're still kind of on that path, but it's something different altogether. And for me now, if, I were told I could never race again. I'd, I'd be okay with it, but I know that I need running as a way to connect with the rest of my world. Right. Yeah. It's so powerful the way a death will wake you up. I mean, I think I write that in running home that it like it wakes you up to the world. It's not comfortable, and it's obviously it sounds very traumatic in your circumstance. At least you know my dad had been sick and was really fast. It was you know ten weeks, but not instant like your mom, but you know, it does wake us up. And, and I think it wakes us up to that really powerful realization that everything's changing all the time. And, you know, we can go through life thinking that we've got 
a handle on it and that we've got the plan mapped mm-hmm. out and we know where we're going, but that's really just an illusion, you know, and it takes a death like that to just snap you out and kind of brings, you know, everything into perspective of like, what's really important, you know? Um, and for me, it, our, it's interesting. Our stories are sort of inverse because I had always run for all these different reasons, mostly like as a creative act, right? You know, mm-hmm. I've been a writer, um, for my whole career and running is a really big part of my creative process. It's how I, it's, that's how I do a lot of my writing. Um, and it was only after my dad died and I got through that initial sort of like 18 months, just triage. Um, and I kind of came out the other side, like, of, you know, grief has that sort of fog and all of a sudden you pop out and you realize you've been gone for a long time. And I popped out and, and it was then that I wanted I realized I wanted to find out what more I was capable of. And that's sort of what the second part of the book is, is exploring is like, what, what are our bodies, but also our minds capable of, and like, you know, our physical stamina, but just as much our emotional stamina. And I think that's why I was drawn to the racing, not really even as a competitive pursuit, but as, um, a benchmark just to see like what was possible in my body and, and spirit at that point. And those longer just, you know, just trying myself at those longer distances. But I, you know, it's, it's an interesting relationship with competition because it's just a tiny piece of why I run. Right. And it's constantly, or at least in my case, and it sounds like in yours too, it, it's constantly evolving as well. Yes. Right, right. Exactly. Like I was saying before, I ha- I'm noticing this new, you know, impulse in me of like not wanting to go as far, not wanting to be gone as long. And like that is evolving and it's not maybe it's sort of uncomfortable because I, I wish I was still in that mindset of just like go and look back, you know, halfway out the door, look back and be like, Oh, I don't want to leave, but I'm thinking about it a lot more before I even leave. And, and so I think we just have to be open because it is always evolving. And I think that's a good thing because otherwise, you know, we'd probably get bored or burn out. <laughs> back to, the book. When did the idea for writing Running Home come to you? Um, wow, that's a great question. I, it came to me, um, again, it was not premeditated. So for a lot of it, I didn't even know I was writing it. I, I, I keep notebooks and so some might call them journals, but I just, I'm writing all the time in, in these notebooks. And um, the beauty of the notebook books is unlike when I'm writing on deadline or for a magazine assignment or whatnot. My notebooks are just for me and they never have to serve a larger purpose. Um, they don't have to be for a result. And so um, they're very liberating. It's sort of like running not to prove myself, but just to run for the joy of it. This is the same feeling I have when I write in my notebooks. And so I'd been writing in the notebooks, you know, throughout my father's illness and his death. Um, you know, again, he had just taught me to pay attention and to take note. And, and so I just was writing just naturally wanted to write it all down so I wouldn't forget. And, um, and then as I was running in those, you know, the year and a half after he died, I was just, I kept writing. Um, but it wasn't until maybe three years after he died, I was on, I do remember this, it was a specific run and I ran up, there's this little mountain in Santa Fe, um, called Adelaia. And it's, um, it's like a 2000 foot climb and I would run up it many days and I was running up it and I got to the top. And whenever I get to the top, I always stop and sit for a minute and just take it in. It's probably not very good training, but I always stop. And um, when I stopped at the top there, two words came into my head right away and it was just running home. 
And I realized like there was a great significance to those words Mm -hmm. somehow that they were going to be important to me. And I knew instantly that I was always running home always. Like I was running home then, like I knew I would turn and run down the mountain back to my husband and kids, but that in a bigger sense, you know, metaphorically, I was running home to myself, like to who I really was. I was running home to the person I was as a child split between these two families, like never at home in either. So really at home in my own body. I mean, that was running and being embodied and, you know, as a runner, as a child was so important. I think because I was split, you know, I had uh, my parents divorced and I was traveling back and forth always between my families. So when I had those two words, I suddenly understood that I all that time I'd been running and writing in my notebook, never needing it to be for anything that I was really working on this book. And it started then to take um, shape. And um, I realized that it was for something larger and I could see a pattern. But it was pretty cool because it it really, like I wrote much of this book without knowing I was writing it. I mean, just in terms of working through, um, you know, my grief and anxiety through running. When you did start putting all of those mm-hmm. notes together into what was eventually manuscript for the book. What was that like for you? Was it a cathartic experience? Was it painful, weird, or like some conglomeration of all those emotions? Um, yeah. Once I started writing, like, um, I had just, I had just won, um, a race in Colorado and I had that feeling like you were asking me about Leadville where like you had this new appreciation for yourself and like a different way. And, I had this sense then of like belonging, you know, belonging to this ultra world that I'd sort of just like, you know, come in, crashed into from the side. And, you know, so I felt this kind of, I don't know, lack of better words, security. And that I think freed me to start writing. And um, once I started writing, it was just the feeling was like overwhelmingly of flow and like the story wanted to come out. And it wasn't even really piecing together my notes. I almost didn't even really go back to my notebooks that much. I knew what was in, it was like, I needed to put it down, but then I was writing something, you know, this, what was coming forth was just coming on its own accord and it had its own energy, very much so the book. And I felt as I was writing it, that my job was just to like guide it into the world, right? That it, that it was its own thing. Um, and, um, and that really stayed with me for a lot of the writing. I mean, that's not to say like there weren't some hard days or weeks. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that I'd broken my leg in a whitewater rafting accident. And that happened when I was writing the book and not surprisingly, um, you know, laid up and on crutches for 14 weeks post-surgery. Um, I, I suffered not only like runner's block, right? Cause I couldn't run, but it translated almost right away into a writer's block. And because I wasn't able to move my body and p- to be in nature in the way that really opens my senses and makes me more awake and alert and receptive to ideas, I wasn't able to do that. So my writing really kind of, um, stalled and, um, I had to work through that, but for the most part, writing the book, it was hard. I mean, it was hard like to go through and relive some of those memories, especially from childhood, some of the more painful ones. Um, and especially, you know, kind of reliving the anxiety also put me back into the anxiety a little bit. It's so visceral, you know, that feeling 
like feeling something in my body mm-hmm. is not right and writing about it and then like wondering like, wow, do I still have this? Is this, you know, so there were moments like that, but for the most part, I just trusted that the book had its own energy and flow and, and that if I could just let it out um, and ride that, it would take me where it needed to go. Last question. The book has been out for a little while now. As you mentioned earlier, you've toured around promoting it. Have you been surprised by any of the reaction to it for better or worse? I mean, I've been gratified. I, 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 I'm not surprised um, because I always had this sense, again, like almost just like as an onlooker, because like I just described, I do feel like the en- the book is its own entity and is like, I'm helping it into the world, but like, it's separate for me and it's good that way. Right. So I can look at it with this kind of wonder. And I knew I had this feeling that it would touch people on all different levels from, you know, runners, but also people coming at it from a grieving perspective and, um, men and women, and that it had these universal themes of like resilience and, um, intuition and kind of listening to ourselves. But, um, I've just been amazed at how many different kinds of people are coming to it and, you know, men and women and all ages and runners and non-runners and people who have lost people they love and are not runners. Um, and that's been really, really gratifying. Um, and people like I knew when I went, when I released the book that I would have to be able to be brave and like talk about my story, um, openly. But what I didn't realize was that being out on the road, so many people would share their stories with me. And that's been so powerful, you know, meeting people who've lost spouses or husbands or, you know, parents and have done incredible things as a result and kind of come through their grief, um, even stronger, right? There's, you know, they, they, there's such a thing as we know about post-traumatic stress disorder, but there's also post-traumatic growth. And, um, I've just been amazed and so um, humbled by the stories I've heard from people who've read the book and have their own, you know, rising through incredible obstacles. I love it. Well, I'm glad it's out in the world. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for making the time and coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. All right, that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. Also, a big thank you to Gooder for helping make it possible. Gooder sunglasses are my favorite shades to run in, drive, walk the dog, and much more. They don't bounce, they won't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they're super affordable with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. If you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two or three of Gooders and head over to Gooder.com slash Mario and use the code Mario15 to get 15% off your entire order. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out as always to my man, John Summerford. He's produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to Chris Douglas for being my right-hand man and handling sponsorship sales, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys have been crucial in helping keep things running smoothly here. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. 
also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe for a weekly collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.